Well, if you have your Bibles, uh, please open up to 1 Timothy, or turn your screen on to 1 Timothy. So 1 Timothy, and we will be reading verses 18 through 20. This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, having faith and a good conscience, which some, having rejected concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck, of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Let's pray. Father, we ask your uh, blessing upon the reading, hearing, and preaching and application of your word. I pray that it would find soil soil in our souls and that um, you would be glorified. Please keep me from error and may you be exalted in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, I've preached two sermons on Timothy, but it's been a long time. So long, I don't really even remember what I preached. But, um, well, I say that jokingly. I, I, I'm, I'm thankful uh, to be picking this back up with you again. Today's sermon is titled, War a Good Warfare. Now, that phrase is from the King James. The New King James has it a little bit different. It says, wage a good warfare. But I like I like war a little better. When, when you say war as a verb, not just a noun, I think it's got some teeth to it. You know, war, a good warfare. Well, we'll see today that Paul is charging Timothy to wage a particular kind of warfare. And it's something that we as a church and as families and as individu- individuals, I think, will benefit greatly from. Spiritual warfare has been mentioned a number of times today, and it is the emphasis, emphasis for 2021. I've got a, a few more uh, months left in 2021. Pastor Duff recently, recently preached on uh, spiritual warfare, and so I'm going to piggyback on him a little bit today. Now, let me say something about warfare in general, the general concept of warfare. Warfare is almost always never linear and almost always never symmetric. It's almost always never exclusively material or immaterial. It's it's a complex mixture. And that's because the nature of war is more than just battle engagements. It's complicated. We have front lines, but the front lines are almost never straight. They're squiggly and they're broken. And today we have communications and the electromagnetic spectrum and timing and initiative. The German strategist Clausewitz, he called it a political endeavor, an extension of national policy. And, uh, you know, in the military circles, they're still quoting this today, a guy from 250 years ago, because we still really don't know, like, what warfare is. But the Bible actually brings a pretty clear view of what warfare is. It's clearer than anything I've seen elsewhere, and that shouldn't be surprising especially when we get a glimpse that the Lord is a warrior. We get this from Exodus 15, verse 3. The Lord is a man of war. 
The Lord is his name. But warfare, warfare in the Bible is still complex. It's multifarious. When we talk about the warfare of Christians, Christian warfare, I think there are at least four types of warfare that we deal with. First, we have the war against Satan and his minions. This is typically what we think of when we say spiritual warfare. These are the flaming darts of the evil one that we don't want to be damaged by. And we want to stand firm in the Lord Jesus Christ. Second, we have the warfare of the Christian's old flesh against his new heart. This is the struggle of personal holiness. This is not so much about Satan, but about our own sin and the sin that we inherited from Adam. Third, there's a warfare between the philosophies of the world and the philosophies of Christ. This is the culture war. It's our apologetics, it's our casting down every high thing that exalts itself against Christ. It's the things that make up our culture, like art and, and uh, clothing to, to music, politics, economics. One of the ways that we wage warfare in this way against the philosophies of the world is homeschooling. You know, we, we, we teach at home the philosophies of Christ, not the philosophies of the world. Now, that's a conflict. And fourth, the fourth mode of warfare for the Christian, I think, is a warfare of redemption and bringing the gospel to unchurched lands or, or tribes or persons or even just a singular person that is spiritually dead. This is the warfare that we are commissioned for in the Great Commission. So there's at least four types of warfare for the Christian, but they all come under a grand campaign, and that is where Christ is subduing all enemies to himself, and he's restoring the creative order. And we're all in this together. We don't sing vacation Bible songs anymore. You know, I mean, here we don't have vacation Bible school, right? But there, there's, some, there's some good ones out there. Sometimes we sing them. The ones like, uh, I'm in the Lord's army. That's in your mind now, right? I'm in the Lord's army. It's a good one. This applies to all of us. But there's an institutional element as well. It's not just we're in the, in, in, in the Lord's army. When the Bible promises that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, it says it in this way. And this is from Matthew 16, chapter, uh, chapter 16, verse 18. And upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Notice the Bible says it. It doesn't say the gates of hell shall not prevail against y'all. Okay, so there is a, it's semantics I know, but I think it's important for us to think about the church in an institutional way, in a body. Um, now, of course, we, we're part of that body, so you get a twofer here, right? Uh, the, the, the institutional church is advancing, and we are advancing as its members. And when we think of warfare, we of course think of Ephesians 6. Now one of the interesting concepts in Ephesians 6 is that we are either marching forward or we are standing firm. Those are really the only two options. Did you ever notice that the, with the armor of God, the armor is on the front side? I mean, you've got the belt and the helmet and those kinds of things, but you've got shin guards on the front and you've got a breastplate. You have a breastplate. 
You know, there's a popular uh, Western movie and there's a line in it that says, we don't need no badges. We might be able to say, we don't need no back plates. We just need a breastplate. That's, we're moving forward. Now, the other thing about Ephesians 6 is that there's only two elements that are specifically offensive in nature, just two, and that's the sword of the spirit and prayer. Now, the next time someone says to you, I'm just gonna fight with the spirit, you say, amen, me too. But of course, we need to remember that the spirit uses the sword of the spirit, and the sword of the spirit is the word of God. The word of God is good enough for Jesus to use in his spiritual warfare, and it's, it's a good model for us. Prayer and the Bible. So prayer and the sword of the spirit are the two offensive weapons. A good example of this is Ezekiel 37. You know the story. Ezekiel sees a whole valley full of dry bones. And what happens here is that there's two exchanges. There's an exchange between Ezekiel and God. And, and then there's a, an exchange where Ezekiel proclaims what God said. There was prayer between Ezekiel and God. And then Ezekiel brought the word to the dry bones. As Joe Moorcraft says, Ezekiel talked to God about the bones. Then Ezekiel talked to the bones about God. And Ezekiel brought the word of God. And this is what it says. And breath came into them, and they lived and stood upon their feet, an exceeding great army. Two offensive weapons here. And it got the job done. And that's all that we really need. Because in our spiritual warfare, what we're trying to do is access God's power. And really to do that, we just need to um, pray to God have his word, and proclaim his word. Now, of course, there's a number of things that flow out of this, but if we try to use our, our own power, it's not gonna work. Our power isn't worth a broken saddle. Our warfare is not of ourselves. And this, this is the idea that we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse four, familiar verse. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. So it means that we're, we're actually using the Lord's power. Deut Deuteronomy 20 says this, for the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. So warfare for the Christian, it has many tenets, but it's under the same campaign. It's forward facing. And it has to be of God's power, not ours. Well, let's Look at our passage for today, starting here at uh, verse 18. Let's look at the first part of verse 18. This charge I commit to you, son Timothy. Now, the word charge is an interesting concept. We get, you know, we get charged money for things. Maybe if you're at a wedding, just a wedding, maybe you guys say, said, uh, charge, charge your glass, we're about to have a toast. But this is a different kind of charge. The charge that we're talking about here is a type of charge that we get every Lord's Day at the end of the sermon. It's a challenge to apply something. It's a challenge to go do something. And I, I think that, as a side note, maybe if, if we can remember the charge every week from the sermon, that might help us to remember the sermon and to apply it. Now, the Greek word behind charge means to command. And so because it means 
to command, and it's normally going to come from a higher authority to a lower authority. So it may not always be appropriate for us to charge someone else, right, depending upon our station in life. But there is kind of a continuum, I think, of how we can interact with each other um, to provoke, as it says in Hebrews, to, and to love and to good works. And here's maybe a spectrum. I, this is what I thought of. Maybe, maybe on, the, on, the, uh, on the lesser end, it's have you considered, when you're talking to somebody, have you considered this? One notch up might be, I would encourage you to. And then maybe one step up is Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, but exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day approaching. Then a notch up, you might have the charge. I charge you to do this. And I would think maybe at the end of the, of the spectrum is to commission. I commission you. That would be an, like an official appointment to things. So my point is that there's ways for us to exhort, encourage, charge each other, different, different ways, and I think we can do this. Now, Timothy was charged by Paul, and he has a certain level of functional authority because Paul is charging Timothy to charge others. The term charge is also used in verse 3, uh, if you want to look back at that. Um, as I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine. Now, Timothy has a role here in Ephesus over the other, uh, other elders. Pastor Kaiser says he was a moderator. Basically, there were a lot of churches in Ephesus. They had a presbytery in Ephesus, and Timothy was the moderator. So he's doing it in a functional capacity. Now, Timothy is charged to do something that is an outflow of what God chose him to do. Look at verse 18 again. This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies that were previously made concerning you. There were prophecies that were made, revealed by someone at some time regarding the future ministry of Timothy. And it probably included the scope of what he was going to do in ministry. Calvin commenting on this simply says that Timothy's ministry was of the Holy Spirit and approved by God. We know that much for sure. But I think that it's the same idea Paul is bringing forward uh, of what he says when God put him into the ministry. And that's in verse uh, 12. And I think Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. And I think Paul has the same thing in mind with his son, Timothy, in the faith. This is the prophecy concerning you. If God does this, if God calls us to something, we have to walk in it. Jonah is a good teacher, isn't he, in this? Jonah is a good teacher of what can happen otherwise. You don't go where the Lord wants you to go. You don't accept the charge. You get thrown overboard. And what happens? Well, you get to, you get to travel in the world's first submarine. <laughs> All right, Trevor. And, uh, and, you, and you get to go to a place you don't want to go to. Seems like three days is a long time to be underwater to me. Well, whatever God tells us to do, 
It's our gracious duty to fulfill that. A popular quote and one that I think is worth memorizing is from Robert E. Lee. And it's this, duty is the sublimest word in the language. You can never do more than your duty and you shall never wish to do less. So if God has you as a father, embrace all that that entails. If God has you as a mother, accept your charge. Children, you, you have a duty to support the family. You, you have a charge from the Bible to honor your parents and to love your brothers and sisters. They are your neighbors. Men, whatever business you own or whatever job you have, in a sense, it's a calling. It may not be a permanent calling, but God has you there. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, Colossians 3, 23. So Timothy is charged to do what God has called him to do specifically. So I think we should take some time and think about what has the Lord called me to do specifically? What have I been charged with? If you have people under your authority, consider charging them. Talk to them about what God wants them to do. Charge them. And it goes the other way too. If you don't have somebody to charge you, a mentor, maybe ask to get one. Get somebody who can give you a couple spur kicks and, and you know, then go do your duty. There's a lot, there's a lot of blessings that come when we do our, our duty and there are generational blessings too. Well, now we come to the central point of this pericope, to wage the good warfare in verse uh, 18 to war the good warfare. Earlier I mentioned that there are at least four modes of warfare for the Christian to wage in his life. So the question might be, which one of the four is the warfare that Timothy is supposed to wage? What is his specific charge? What's he being put up to? Well, the first clue, I think, comes from what we just read. Look at verse 18 again according to the prophecies made concerning you, that by them you may wage a good warfare. It is by these prophecies, these prophecies about Timothy becoming an important church leader, that he's to wage this warfare. So the warfare in mind here for Timothy is fighting from a position of being a shepherd. Okay? So I think Timothy's warfare is shepherding warfare. That might not fit neatly into those four categories that I said, but that's because it assumes all of them. Timothy is to wage warfare himself and to call others to it against Satan, against his own sin, against the philosophies of this world and the bad doctrine that's being kicked around, and against death and destruction by calling people to be saved. So he's, he's doing all these things. Now, along these lines... Warnings are a big part of Paul's charge to Timothy. Throughout the book, Paul is warning Timothy to guard the flock against destructive teaching and sin. And we're going to see it's a very practical approach. There's a lot of orthopraxy going on here. And it gets to the heart of the matter, and, and it's this, to protect the church and to protect the people in the church. And the stakes are high. Stakes are very high in this regard. And I want us to see some of the potential problems 
and ramifications if this war is lost. So let's go through some of these verses. Just walk with me. Chapter 1, verse 4. Nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification which is in faith. So if doctrine is not upheld uh, upheld and fables are allowed, disputes come up. And godly edification and faith goes down. Continuing on, verses uh, 5 and 6. Now the, the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith, from which some, having strayed, have turned aside to idle talk. So if some do not keep the purpose of the commandment of love and of a pure heart, they stray. Still in chapter one, look at, look at verse 19. That's in our specific text today. It says, having faith and a good conscience, which some having reject concerning the faith have suffered shipwreck. If faith is not kept, it becomes a shipwreck. Now here in the Midwest, we don't have much of an appreciation for shipwrecks. The best one I know of is about 15 miles due north of here. There's one, 15 miles due north of here. I'm not kidding. There's a shipwreck up there in the DeSoto National Wildlife Refuge. The ship is called the Steamboat Patron. Back in 1856, it had a bunch of passengers that were traveling from St. Louis up to Montana for the gold rush. And everything's going fine, and then they get up north of Omaha, and the Missouri gets a little wanky up there, and uh, they hit a submerged log, and the ship started taking on water. Now, this story does not have a tragic ending. They just kind of walked off the boat onto the shore, and um, everything was okay, but I, can't, I, I think they lost quite a bit of stuff. At least there's a lot of stuff up there in the museum. But shipwrecks normally, not in the Midwest, are much worse than that. So let's continue to look, on, look at some of these warnings. Let's go to uh, chapter 3, verse 7. Speaking of the qualification of an elder, this is in verse 7, moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Then we come to chapter four of 1 Timothy. Now when Pastor Kaiser teached on this, he showed that this was the heart of the letter. And what it's discussing here is the great apostasy that would occur in Ephesus. So let's read uh, four verse one. Now the spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. Elizabeth, could you bring me water? Thank you. Now back in Acts chapter 20, which was written about 10 years prior to this letter in Ephesus, this was prophesied. And you can read the whole section there. Paul is addressing the elders at Ephesus. But uh, just to the heart of the matter, This is what it says in Acts chapter 20, verse 28 through 29. Paul's speaking to the elders at Ephesus 10 years before 2 Timothy is written, okay? 
Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. So this is serious. Timothy's timing is impeccable. He's, he's showing up right when the, this stuff is starting to happen. Now these warnings are not just for Timothy to pass on. Some of these warnings are for Timothy himself. Look at 1 Timothy 4.16. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this, you will save both yourselves and those who hear you. It's interesting that Timothy, who's a son of Paul in the faith, gets an exhortation by Paul to continue in these things that he might be saved. Timothy will be saved, and and so will those to whom he is preaching. In what way? By taking heed to himself and continuing in the doctrine. So strong warning, even for Timothy. So let's all take heed. I mean, if Timothy should be warned, we should all be warned. Moving on, more warnings, more bad things that could happen. If someone does not provide for his own house, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That's um, verse 5-8. Young widows, if, if they are wrongly brought into the distribution of resources, they will grow wanton against Christ. That's 5-11. In verses 5-14 through 15, it says this. You can read it if you want with me. 5, 14 through 15. Therefore I desire that the younger widows marry, bear children, manage the house, give no opportunity to the adversary to speak reproachfully, for some have already turned aside after Satan. And then finally, verse 610, those who are are rich and have a lot of money, this is their, their admonition. They have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Okay, I think we get the idea. This war that is before the broader church at Ephesus and that Timothy is the point man to wage is a shepherding warfare. I want to ask you a question. And maybe you're already asking this question or maybe you've asked yourself this question in the past. How are we to think about all these passages that talk about departing from the faith? What about all of these passages that say, if you do this, you will depart from the faith? Well, the simple and biblical answer is that if they depart and stay departed, They were never true believers. They were never truly elect. They were in the visible church, but not the invisible. They were of Israel, but not true Israel. On the other hand, if they were true Christians, saving faith, they would not have strayed, or if they did, they would return. There are clear passages to indicate this. 
Actually, John brought one up in his communion meditation um, from John 10, verses 27 through 28. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall any one snatch them out of my hand. But I think we need to deal specifically with these warnings. We have to account for the fact that there's a lot of emphasis on what not to do or what to do so that you, so that I, so that we do not depart from the faith. Now, the first thing I'll I'll, I'll mention is something that Pastor Kaiser mentioned when he preached on this. It's about the, the woman being saved in childbearing. Has that been a confusing verse maybe for you in the, in the past? Well, what he said is that this verse is about sanctification. Now, sanctification is part of our salvation, but it's separate than justification, okay? Any amount of childbearing or any other work will never increase our righteousness such that God says, good enough, come on in. Also, take a look at, at that verse. So that's uh, 2 verse 15. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. The preposition is important here. She will not be saved by childbearing. She will be saved in childbearing. It's a sanctification. Only the perfect righteousness of Christ is going to save us, and only it will do its work. Romans 8.30 lays it out quite clearly. It will be efficacious. We love that word, right? Efficacious. Moreover, whom he predestined, he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. In other words, if it's God's plan, if it's his plan, it's going to happen. Okay, but there's still these admonitions about us doing something or not doing something and it resulting in admonition, okay? I remember our last PHF. I'm pretty sure it was our, our, our last uh, PHF. Uh, Mr. Tyler was Tetzel and uh, Joe Shepard was Luther. It was, it, it was a good one. It, uh, it showcased that particular conflict very well. Well, the thing about Luther is uh, he had more than one enemy. And, um, and uh, he, he had a rather sportive uh, argument with a man named Erasmus, too. And it, it, uh, it's uh, laid out in a book called The Bondage of the Will by, by Martin Luther. And he's uh, rebuking and, and responding to Erasmus. Erasmus's contention was that if our salvation was really just up to God to determine, then God wouldn't have given us commands to choose him. Right? I mean, this, this command implies that we can choose him. It implies free will. If God commands us to decide, then obviously we have the ability to do this for ourselves, right? I mean, that's, that's the thinking. That's Erasmus's thinking. That's the Arminian view. It's, it's, it's very common in broader evangelical circles. So what about all these warnings to do these things or to not do these things, to, to, to stay in the faith and ultimately be saved? Is Erasmus right? Is Arminian right? <clears throat> well, this is what we say. This is what we believe the Bible teaches. All of these admonitions, to do something, to stay in the faith, we need to do them. We 
are responsible to do them. But when we do them, it's not us keeping them that keeps us in the faith. God is the one who keeps us in the faith. That's clear. Many places. First Peter says we are kept by the power of God unto salvation. But God uses these types of things to sift out and to separate who he is keeping and who he is not keeping. That's because our will is not outside of God's sovereignty. Okay? Let me read something out of Robert Raymond's theology on this very issue. That's kind of a long quote, but uh, I think it's a good one. But, asked the Arminian, if true Christians will in fact persevere to the end anyway, why are there these admonitions which often carry with them the threat of eternal destruction, even issued by the scripture writers? Aren't they really unnecessary if Christians can't be lost? The Calvinist responds, they are issued for the same reason that Paul, even though God had assured him on the occasion of the impending shipwreck recorded in Acts 27, that there shall be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship, warned the centurion and the soldiers that unless the sailors who were trying to escape in the lifeboat remained in the ship, they who remained in the ship could not be saved. Okay? So Paul was assured of their salvation, but he also knew that the means of their salvation was for all to remain on board the ship. In other words, God uses these admonitions that we're seeing today to keep his elect in the faith. C.H. Hodge said this, that God secures the end by securing the means. Therefore, the, these admonitions to stay in the faith, they're real. And we really need to choose them. You can't out-Calvinist this, okay? Calvin wouldn't out-Calvinist this. These are real things. We need to do them, but they're not outside the sovereignty of God. We should also look at the specifics here. You children who have been blessed to be in the covenant, keep the covenant, keep the commandments of God. Older people, probably less likely to drift away, but I think we should all take heed. As Pastor Kaiser says, don't have faith in your faith. Have faith in Jesus. Well, we've said that this warfare is a shepherding warfare that Timothy is called to. In order to do this, Timothy has to have boots on the ground. Think about the scope of the things, just as some of the things we've mentioned, and we haven't mentioned all of them, but the scope of the things he's responsible for. Many of these things are happening outside of Sunday morning, outside of the Lord's Day service. Now, Timothy isn't the only elder but he is an elder and he has to do this shepherding and he has to preach these things. Things like the doctrine, praying, how, how we dress, women teaching, qualifications of elders and deacons, and even their, uh, uh, um, uh, what's it called, um, reputation outside of the church. Church relationships, widows, 
workplace relationships. All of these things have to be put before the Lord, shepherded, and done. The scope of shepherding is going to require some on-the-ground, throughout-the-week kind of leadership. And, well, shepherding. Now, I wonder if in America we would be comfortable with this level of shepherding that seems to be in view here. When I see this, I, you know, sometimes I wonder if we would start to feel a little bit smothered. This topic was brought up in Richard Baxter's book, The Reformed Pastor. He contemplated the same thing. He said, you know, I, I, I think I need to shepherd these people, but if I, if I do that too much, I think I'm going to smother them. I don't think I'm going to like that. They're not going to like it. Well, it turns out they did. And it turns out it was a great blessing. This is what Richard Baxter wrote. And I find more outward signs of success with most of them that do come, in other words, that, that do come to shepherding, than from all my public preaching to them. Listen to what the Westminster Directory uh, of, um, of Public Worship says. It is the duty of the minister not only to teach the people committed to his charge in public, but privately, and particularly to admonish, exhort, reprove, and comfort them upon all seasonable occasions, and so far as his time, strength, and personal safety will permit. That is a high level of shepherding. Now, the gifting of elders is different. The needs of the family is different. I think maybe the culture is a little bit different. So I don't see a hard and fast rule here, but I do think that we need to consider that shepherding is something that we really need to pursue and ask for and support, even if it's a short time. You know, um, but I, I think it's a good thing to do. And I think we also need to spend time shepherding each other to exhort one another. Have you, have you ever wondered how do we do what Hebrews 3.13 says to do, but exhort one another daily while it's called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. We can all do something with his charge to shepherd. Fathers, and I'm speaking to myself too, let's go boot to boot. Let's get in there. Ask your kids what they're looking at on the computer. Ask to see the Spotify playlist. Go into their bedroom. Ask if they're staying pure. Set boundaries. Listen, I'm talking to fathers and mothers here, but particularly fathers. Don't, and don't neglect your daughters. It's a team effort. And I think maybe we should have a discussion. We should, we should look at these things, these admonitions and these warnings in Timothy and, and go, okay, these things apply. But what else applies to us today? What has changed what, 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 what different applications should we have so that we would not lose faith? I, I'm, I'm thinking maybe this might be a good family meeting. Sit down and, and, and do this, you know, uh, collectively. Ask your children, what things um, do you think that I need to be shepherding? <clears throat> well, there's... 
We're just getting going. There's a, there's a lot more good stuff here. Let's, let's look at verses 19 through 20. And let's read that. Having faith and a good conscience, which some having rejected concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck, of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. I want to talk about conscience, having faith and a good conscience. I've been reading two books, uh, one with John Cole and one with my older daughters. Um, the one for the, for the boys is called Letters to Young Men. Okay, so <laughs> Letters to, for the men, the young men. And the other one is uh, Letters on Practical Subjects to a, a Daughter. Both of these are Sprinkle Publications um, by W.B. Sprague. I recommend them. They were recommended to me by my friend John Huffman. Now, what's interesting about these books, which were written before the war between the states, is the emphasis on conscience. We don't see much writing on conscience today, but it's throughout these books. Let me give you an example. Uh, in, uh, in the book, Letters to Young Men, Sprague writes this, and, and he's speaking of afflictions that are gonna come to young men, okay? He says, never seek to avoid an affliction by any means which a properly enlightened conscience will not justify. In other words, if you're gonna, if, if you see an affliction coming and, you, and you're thinking about ways to avoid it, don't avoid it any other way. Not that your conscience uh, will, would not justify, but that an enlightened conscience would not justify. So in other words, not just how you see it subjectively, but how you would see it if you had a proper conscience. How do you get a proper conscience? How do you get that? And that, to approach life with? Well, you do it by reading, by meditation, by prayer, by good preaching, by experience and trials. Conscience, I think we need to re revive consideration of this. Paul has mentioned this conscience twice here in the first chapter what we just read, but also back in verse five. Now the purpose of the commandment is love with a pure heart from a good conscience and from sincere faith. Now another aspect of this conscience is that we need to confess our sins. We need to have a clear conscience before men and, and before the Lord, and that will enable us to go forward in warfare. Let's look at the next one. But this faith and conscience, some have rejected and suffered shipwreck. Time to get personal. Look at verse 20. Of whom, here's who shipwrecked, of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Pastor Kaiser pointed out that these two guys, they're, they're elders, which makes sense why Paul would be excommunicating them. Now we're going to get to a very encouraging part. We've gone through a lot of heavy warnings. We've seen a, a lot of war going on and people's souls are at stake. We've seen a great apostasy. But now look right here in our, in, in our last verse whom I delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Now, I want to mention two things about Satan. First, he's powerful, more powerful than us. 
Second, he's less powerful than God. He has his head smashed in. And he's on a leash. For us, he's still dangerous, but he's been defeated. Pastor Moorcraft says that God uses him as a sheepdog now. He uses them to get strange sheep back in the pen where they belong. That's the idea. Hymenaeus and Alexander have some serious thing, things to learn. It's, it's, it's not good out there. It's not good to be released to Satan. But there's a purpose and a hope here. We don't know about these men ultimately. We, we do know that in 2 Timothy 2.17, they are still causing problems after being excommunicated. But maybe they learned later. Maybe God used this as a means of restoration. Certainly this is the design. Certainly this is the hope. And I would even say the expectation. Paul didn't turn them over to Satan so Satan could have his way. Quite the opposite. They were blasphemers and Paul had a purpose to restore them through excommunication. Just the fact that he expects them to learn not to blaspheme means that it it must mean something to them. It must be a concern of them. He expects them to learn. So Timothy's war was a shepherding war. I, I, I charge you, look at these warnings. Be watchful for your own souls. Be watchful for the soul, souls under your care. Elders, I'm thankful that you do this. Continue to do this. The rest of us, we can exhort each other and we can watch out for things that might show impending shipwreck, high seas shipwreck. Okay? Children, especially your teenagers, be watchful. All of us, even elders, be watchful according to this book. But God can and does rescue shipwrecked Christians. And there's also a lot of positive rewards. Blessings for being faithful in this book. Deacons who serve well will obtain a good standing. 313. Verse 4, 8 says that godliness is profitable for all things, having the promise of life that now is and that which is to come. Verse 6, 12, let's, let's read that together. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life to which you are also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Notice it's a good fight. Not all fights are good, but this is, this is a good one. So there's a lot of positive things here. But I do think that we need to end this sermon on warfare, on shepherding warfare, and go back to the warning. That's the way the Holy Spirit seemed to want us to, to end it. Let's look at the last two verses. And we'll read them as an exhortation to war the good warfare. O Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust avoiding the profane and idle, idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. By professing it, some have strayed concerning the faith. Grace be with you. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, um, we, um, we need these warnings. We need direction. We need shepherding. And uh, you know what we need more than we do. We're, we're learning what we need. We thank you for warnings. We thank you for your ways of restoring your sheep back into the pen.
We thank you for promises that you give. We thank you that this life that we have as, as Christians is not just about Sunday morning. We thank you that underneath all of this is an understanding of your sovereignty, of your love, of your concern for your people. And we thank you. We, I, I do pray that we will help us, please, to put this to use. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.